the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf to establish his kingdom through his people who participate in loyal allegiance in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is for God's great glory and our profound joy. Jesus, you calm the raging seas, bring nations to their knees, from your name darkness flees, defeat your enemies, Jesus, you reign over it all, mountain peak to ocean floor, every heart, every soul, will praise your name.
Make me an offering. 
the ground of all my tradition Break down the walls of all my religion Yours better surrender to you this morning we surrender to your will and even if we're not quite there yet if we're not ready to surrender Lord help us get a little bit closer help us give over a little bit more make us more like you refine us as scary as that is to ask for Lord refine us make us more like you Unify your body. Unify your bride. Lord, show us the areas of our hearts where we're holding on to things that aren't yours. Help us to release those things into your hand. I think we need to go back and sing Shake Up the Ground a couple more times. Shake up the ground of all my tradition Break down the walls of all my religion Your way is better 
to do on our own. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your faithfulness for every moment of our lives. Thank you for this time of worship that we pour out to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much, everybody. Go ahead and greet someone around you. Welcome to Faith Church. Glad you're with us. If you're new around here, my name's Matthew, one of the pastors, and it's a joy to be with you to worship and sing and open scriptures. Uh, hey, if you have a copy of the Bible with you, whether digital or printed, why don't you open it to Matthew chapter 26. If you didn't bring a copy of scripture, but you have your cell phone, pull it out. There's a QR code on the screen. You can scan It'll take you to a spot on our central hub where you can follow along with the scriptures and the notes and uh, maybe take some if you want on your own and watch it or, or email it to yourself so you've got it as we uh, move forward through the week. Matthew 26, we've been in this journey uh, for several weeks kind of through the book of Matthew looking at the King Jesus gospel and we're nearing the end of it as we're looking at the last few moments of Jesus' life his teachings, his interactions, his time with his disciples before he would go to the cross, be buried, and raised again, which we'll celebrate all together in a couple weeks. And uh, Matthew 26 is kind of where we're going to look at today. Starting in verse 36, this is what the word says. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. Somebody say Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. And then he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. 
he went on a little further and bowed his face to the ground. And while praying, he said, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he turned to the disciples and he found them asleep. And he said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. And when he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. Come on, sometimes we can, we can get into that moment of prayer and we spend more time fellowshipping with like Brother Pillow and Sister Sheets. We just are like, out. Cool, those are bad preacher jokes. Those are like old school ones I'm pulling back, y'all. Thanks for laughing. That made me feel nice. So he went and prayed a third time. How many times? Three now. Saying the same things. Then he came to his disciples and he says, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Now, you'll remember from last week's text that Jesus was uh, in a home and they were having a meal and interrupted in this middle of this meal was this woman who came with a passionate plea of worship and anointing Jesus with some oil. And, and then there was kind of a little side note as, oh yeah, by the way, there was this guy named Judas who was really kind of evil and, and, and Satan had already kind of entered him and he already went and found a way to like betray Jesus and took some money. And then if you were to keep reading, you would have read that, that they gathered in a final meal together and, and Jesus taught them about communion and he was finishing up sharing some of his last moments of most important instructions of what he needed and longed for them to do in this season of their life and what was about to come next and he was comforting them and in John uh, you'll, you'll see in John's gospel that he's he's telling him about the Holy Spirit and abiding in the vine and bearing much fruit and don't be afraid don't let your hearts be troubled uh, and he was giving them all of the, these last minute instructions and sang a song together and then they got up to go to the garden of Gethsemane they got up to go to this place. and I'm sure on their way they had many good conversations and many things were taking place. But it was here in this garden that Jesus knelt down and he just spent some time praying and communing. And, and we get a glimpse into something in Jesus' life. Now all through the Gospel of Matthew, the, the writer has been unpacking some important themes and he's been using contrast all over the place. Like here's this and then here's this. Like last week we talked about the contrast between the woman who was so adoring of Jesus and then Judas who was ready to betray Jesus, who was cynical and critical and suspicious and had his own agenda when it came to Jesus. We've been looking at these contrasts, and, and we've, we've said as we've studied this book that all through not only are these contrasts present, but Matthew is trying in his gospel to articulate that Jesus is the culmination, the finishing moment, the, the end of a storyline that God has been writing throughout the whole Bible. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about a lot of things. But if I can summarize it and give you two themes to always be looking for in whatever part of Scripture you're reading, here's two themes to always be looking for. Look for the theme of redemption 
and look for the theme of renewal. See, Jesus came to complete the story of Israel, God's people, and to bring about full redemption for the world. And at the culmination and the climax of the story of redemption, he would then usher in a new storyline that would begin in the New Testament about the renewal of humanity that would lead as a promising picture to the renewal of all things in all the world for all time when Jesus returns a second time. These two themes, redemption and renewal. And here we have Jesus in a garden. There was another garden that was very, very important in the story of God's people. It's found in the very beginning of your Bible. It's the story found in the Garden of Eden. You have the Garden of Eden in the beginning, and you have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Two gardens, one story of redemption, though. T take a look at the contrast between these two gardens. And look at this, this picture here. Uh, the Garden of Eden, the word Eden meant pleasure. The Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane meant oil press. In the Garden of Eden, Adam had joy and peace with life ahead of him, but chose his own will over God's will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus suffered agony, was in distress, was facing death ahead of him, and chose the Father's will instead of his will. It was a reversal, a redemptive move toward the ways of God in the Garden of Gethsemane that was lost in the Garden of Eden. The first garden is where they abandoned, where humanity abandoned following God and said, we want to know good and evil for our own terms. Make the choices of our own will. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is surrendering his will back to God's will. As he prays and pleads and sits with God. Now, the word Gethsemane means oil press. Uh, when they were to make oil in, ancient, uh, in the ancient Near East, they, they, they used three steps and stages to produce oil. The first stage was a crushing. The second stage was a pressing. And the third stage was a separation. Three stages. In the first stage, they would put the olives in a huge stone kind of circle. And a large stone would roll and crush the olives. It would roll around and around and around until the olives were crushed into like a paste. Till the, to the formation, the hardness on their outside, the hard, hard shell that almost is like hard like an almond, but not quite that hard. That hard outer shell of the olive would have to be crushed into like this paste. Then they would take and scoop out all of the pasty olives... And would put it in hollow baskets that had kind of a, a hole on top, hole in the bottom, but were circular. And they would line as much paste as they could in these baskets. And they would stack these baskets, as many as they could stack, and they would put it on an olive press. It looks like this. You can see the baskets all, all stacked together. All the, the pasty olives are all in there. And they would then press with all of the weights that they could find the olives in the baskets. And as that stone goes down and they would press it, oil would begin to flow out of the olives. Now, they would do this three times, the pressing. The first time they pressed the olives, 
oil that came out was the most pure. It was the best tasting. It was the, it was the best oil. You know what they did with the best that they got first? They gave it back to God. It was their tithe. The first and the best, they returned to God. And they would bring it to the temple where they would use it for all sorts of things in the temple, like anointing oil and some of the most precious things that they would do that they found sacred and holy. They returned it to the Lord. Then the second press, the second time they pressed, they would get more oil to come out of the olives. And in the second press, they would take this oil. It was so helpful. They would use it for all sorts of things in their lives. It was provision for their everyday life. They would take that oil and they would use it for perfumes. They would use it for food. They would use it for um, all sorts of like medicines and, 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 and things that you could drink. It, they, they turned it into something amazing that used and flourished and helped their everyday life move forward. But then the third press... The third time they pressed, I mean, they had been pressed and crushed already, but they pressed these olives more. And the last amount of oil that they could squeeze out of the olive press, they would take this oil and they would use it for lamps and for soap. This was the third time they were pressed. You've heard me identify through the themes of Scripture Whenever there's a third of something, you always kind of want to pay attention to that. Who is the third person of the Trinity and Godhead? The Holy Spirit. Very good. God the Father, God the Son, and then God the Holy Spirit. The third. We've already looked in Jesus' teaching when he was telling them, about in the end of time, when the end comes, you need to be ready. And one of the ways you are ready is, and he tells a parable about uh, some bridesmaids. And those bridesmaids needed a lamp. And that lamp was fueled by oil. And we said that oil throughout scripture represents the person of the Holy Spirit. They would, the third oil that they got was used for the oil of their lamps, which was to remind them of the presence of the Spirit in their life. Oh, and by the way, they would use it for soap. You know what other thing the Holy Spirit is said to do throughout the New Testament? He's meant to be a sanctifying present that washes us clean. Friends, the Bible is rich with so many wonderful things. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, here in the Garden of the Oil crushing and pressing and separating something pure is being created in the life of Jesus something is happening in the life of Jesus in this moment in his suffering in his pain that is pure and holy and wonderful uh, like Jesus we need to recognize that crushing occurs in our lives Crushing is something that has to occur in our lives. There's something that we need to do. And when we are crushed like Jesus, we need to recognize that it's the moments of our pain, the moments of our suffering, the moments of our grief, the moments of our disappointment, that the best thing to do is to cultivate real communion with God through prayer. 
It is a resource he has given to us and an opportunity that we each have. I love that it was in the middle. I think it was in, in Luke's gospel when he talks about the Garden of Gethsemane. It says that Jesus was in so much pressure, so much stress. He literally started to drop sweats of blood. Like capillaries in his brain, were be, in, his, in his body were beginning to burst and blood was beginning to flow out of him. He was under so much stress and agony. And the Bible says this, that the angels came to minister to him. See, because it's in the presence and the moments of prayer where you are having communion with God, where the Holy Spirit shows up and he begins to give you the oil of joy in the presence of your mourning. He begins to give you uh, the strength that you need to live in the middle of the weakness and agony that you're experiencing in this moment. See, it's even though we go to prayer to connect with God, it is in the moments of prayer that we're connecting with God that God also is supplying something to us. That cannot come in any other place, in any other avenue other than in those moments. Now, when I talk about uh, experiencing the crushing of life, when I talk about crisis, when I talk about tragedy, when, when I talk about like being pressed and crushed like olives, I'm not talking about like your first world problems. Like, I don't get some reception in the back of the school. What is happening? Uh, all right, like I'm not talking about like first world problems. I hit every red light on the way to work and I was late. It wasn't the light's fault you were late. Come on, quit lying. Like, I'm not talking about first world problems like you had to go to a restaurant but the waiting time was 45 minutes and how dare they not make room for you? Didn't they know you were coming and it's your favorite restaurant on your birthday and all your plans had to change? I'm not talking about your first world problems problems where your comforts and things of that nature those happen that's true I, I'm talking about the time everyone in your school was gossiping about you and it wasn't true and you couldn't do anything about it I'm, I'm talking about the time you got a diagnosis that was unreversible and you had no idea what you were going to do next I'm talking about the pain and suffering of a loved one that you promised death do us part, but you never thought you'd come to the departing of death, but they departed in death. I'm talking about the agony of having to walk with a loved one through an illness and a disease that steals their mind and their coherency to where they are no longer, they are simply a shell of a person, but yet their person is still there and you have to be present in that moment. I'm talking about getting a pink slip at a job that you never thought you'd leave and you, they couldn't live without you, but all of a sudden they're letting you know from this day forward they are living without you. And you are left with the dizzying reality of trying to figure out what is my purpose in life, my career, my life. It's all seeming to go. I'm talking about the news of a divorce that you didn't see coming, but here it is nonetheless. I'm talking about the people in your life that doesn't matter where you go, you keep running into the same kinds of people that drive you absolutely insane. And you wonder, why in the world do these people keep showing up? I left that job to not deal with people like this, but yet here they are. 
See, it's in the crushing and the pressing and these moments where we experience crisis and suffering. When our experiences don't align with the desired outcome of our life or the expectations of what we feel like is right and what we are owed, these moments of crushing, these moments of pain, these moments of suffering, these moments where it's like our crisis is up and down, up and down, up and down, and it's like you eventually hit a wall. Pete Scazzaro talks about this wall that we hit in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He says it like this. For most of us, the wall appears through a crisis that turns our world upside down. We question ourselves, God, the church. We discover for the first time that our faith does not appear to quote-unquote work. We have more questions than we have answers, and the very foundations of our faith feels like it's on the line. We don't know where God is. We don't know what God is doing. We don't know where he is going. And how in the world is he going to get us there? And when will this all be over? That's the wall. That's the moment. That's where Jesus found himself. Friends, there are some things in your life that God cannot produce and help you to encounter and know about him unless you go through the olive grove and get crushed and pressed until your very life is transformed into something else altogether. God does not need you to stay an olive. He needs you to become oil. And the only place you're going to become oil is in the garden of the olive press. In the stations of life where you get crushed, where suffering comes, disappointments come, where you have to take up your cross and walk the crucible of dying to your flesh and your desires in life. Some of you are like, I, I, don't, know about, I don't know about all that. What do we do with all of that? What, what happens? See, I've been painting a picture of many of your situations and stories and understanding. And some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Others of you kind of have an idea, but you're not 100% sure. You're just trying to figure it out. And at the end of the day, you're like, okay, pastor, it's happening. We get it. We know it's going to happen to us. What do we do about it? Well, we do the same thing Jesus did. And we draw close to God. We link into God and we tap into the life of God, allowing him to do a work that moves us from an olive to the oil. Friends, prayer is where we wrestle our will until it yields to God the Father's will. It's the moment where you wrestle until you tap out and say, I'm done. It's the moment where you wrestle and struggle and and recognize that there is a, a point to this. See, prayer is not you getting God to do your will. God, I need you to do this. God, this is what's going on in my life. I need you to fix this, address this, change this, move here, do this, provide this, give me this, help me with this. It's not about you getting God to do your will. Prayer is the place that God reveals his will and how your will doesn't line up with his will. Prayer is the place you get to know God's will and say, God, your will, not my will. God, your ways, not my ways. And sometimes the only way we can learn that our will is not God's will is when we come front and center with pain and suffering. 
There are two ways to learn about the truths in life. You can learn through wisdom or you can learn through consequence. Most people don't know how to learn through wisdom. There are some aspects of the kingdom of God and the life of God that you're not going to learn through just wisdom. You're going to have to walk through some experiences that bring some consequences that bring and produce something in your life that is only good from God. And part of what happens in the garden where we, in prayer when we're wrestling and talking with God is he reveals just how fleshly and selfish you really are. Where you come front and center and he holds up a mirror and say, hey, you're doing it like this and it's all about you and you've missed it. You've become self-absorbed instead of spiritually empowered. And you need to come to a place where you wrestle your flesh. The flesh gets in the way of a lot of things in our lives. What did Jesus say? He said, hey guys, I need you to pray because your spirit is willing to walk with God, but your flesh is weak sauce. You weak? We're in our journey to Easter, and Monday through Friday, we've laid out some options for you to fast, to go without some things, to tell your flesh to take a back seat. Your spirit might be willing to participate, but your flesh is weak. This, this week, you know what, what our, our theme of fasting, kind of the realm we're asking you to fast is? To give up your entertainment, your video games, your movies, your Netflix, your YouTube watching, all of the entertainment, the things that you do to just kind of self-absorb and numb and to get escape and to get out of the things and just to decompress, like get rid of the entertainment and say no to your flesh and instead engage with the Spirit of God. Your In the moment, you're like, oh, I can do that. I can go without Netflix until Thursday night shows up and you're done. The week's over. Everybody's quiet. And you're like, I just need to unwind for a minute. Spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Here's the good news. Jesus came to help us overcome the flesh too. See, Jesus defeated the power of death in the tomb. Jesus defeated the power of sin on the cross. But it was in the garden that Jesus defeated the power of the flesh. And showed us how to not walk in the flesh, but instead walk in the spirit. So that we don't fulfill, as Paul says, the lust of our flesh. He shows us how to overcome it. Nancy Guthrie in her article in Journey to the Cross says it like this. Here is the hope we find in catching this glimpse into Gethsemane. Here we discover that it really is possible to overcome our own wants, to push through them into glad surrender as we are joined to Jesus by faith. His perspective begins to shape our perspective. His power begins to flow into us and through us as we come to moments of prayer and we remind ourselves every day, God, not my will, but your will be done. It's a daily prayer of surrender. It's tapping out every day. God, I can't do it no more. It's on you. Not my will, but your ways. Not my ways and how I want things, but Lord, your your ways and how you want things. Prayer helps us wrestle to the point where we say, God, not my will, but your will be done. And this is what Jesus modeled for us. Prayer is the place that we do that. Prayer, secondly, is also a place that we're supposed to practice vulnerability. Now, we don't like vulnerability. We don't like having to be honest in a way that's really transparent. We would rather pretend, put on a face, act like it's all together. How you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm good. Thank you. It's good to see you. Yeah. Praise Jesus. 
But we don't really know how to get vulnerable. We'll ask each other how our week is going. But don't anybody ask me, hey, what's God been saying to you this week? Hey, where have you experienced joy this week? Well, that's, that's really personal. Vulnerability is a part of the process that we have to walk through. If we're going to suffer well, if we're going to go through and not just be pasty olives, but pure oil on the other side, we have to learn how to be vulnerable. Jesus demonstrated appropriate vulnerability. He showed us how to be vulnerable with other people, with sincerity and honesty. You know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't vomit his emotions on Facebook. Guys, I just need to get this off my chest. No, you don't. You just need to gripe and complain and need an audience to do it. He didn't, he didn't tell everybody everything, but he did tell some people everything. Jesus had a large crowd that followed him everywhere. He ministered to thousands. He had 70 plus people who were there partnering with him in ministry to help make sure it happened. There were 12 people on his staff that he called the apostles. And of those 12, he only gave close intimate access to three, Peter, James, and John. All of the disciples went to the garden to pray. All of his staff was there praying with him in the garden. Three of them got to come close enough so they could hear what he prayed. And to those three, he got vulnerable and said, hey guys, my soul is being crushed. I am grieving. I am agonizing. And death is coming. I need to go be alone and hear the Father. Will you be with me while I pray? Three. Not everybody. Three. He showed us what appropriate vulnerability and emotional health looks like. T take a look at this diagram when it comes to Jesus' vulnerability and his emotions. Jesus experienced grief. Jesus experienced anguish. Jesus experienced disappointment. Jesus experienced betrayal. Jesus experienced abandonment. Quick, quick show of hands. How many of you have ever felt those things in your life? Come on. Don't lie. Be vulnerable in the house of the Lord. It's okay. You felt those things. Guess what? You're in really great company. Way to live like Jesus on this earth. Here's what Jesus didn't do. Jesus didn't deny his emotions. And Jesus is not letting his emotions run his life. What did he do? Instead, Jesus processed what he was feeling. Jesus honored what he was walking through. He took personal responsibility for this is how he felt. He didn't blame other people. Guys, it's all God's fault I'm feeling this way. I just need somebody to know that I'm feeling this way, but it's really their fault that I'm feeling this way. That's not what he did. He took responsibility for them, and he doesn't get stuck or lost because of those deep, anguishing emotions that he was feeling. Why? Because he knew that in prayer, he could be vulnerable to God. You know what he did all the time? He would go to God, and then he would go back to his disciples. He would go to God, and he'd go back to his close three disciples. He'd go to God, and he'd go back to the three that were close to him. This process of trusting in God and talking to him, talking to others and trusting in them. Jesus processed it well because in prayer, you get to practice vulnerability, which means the first time you do it, you're going to be terrible at it. 
Because most of us, the first time we do something, we are terrible at that thing. And so we practice again and again and again. Most of us have uh, two incorrect responses when we experience crisis. When the junk hits the fan, we typically respond in one of two ways. The first way that we do it is distrust. We start blaming other people for our problems. We start uh, becoming suspicious of them. We get unhealthy in our mechanisms of trying to cope. So we eat more chocolate. We drink more wine. We take more pills. We play more video games. We look at more porn. We do all of the things to self-medicate and try to numb and get away from the real root issue of what's going on. Simply because we would rather blame other people than trust them. But Jesus showed us that we could be honest and vulnerable and humble all at the same time. We don't have to get stuck in toddler ways of processing our pain. But we can grow and mature beyond those. Jesus trusted people around him with his deepest, most painful, real elements in his life. And he took him to God too. The second way that we uh, often mishandle moments of crisis It's not just distrusting of other people, but we begin to deny it. We suppress those things in our lives. We act like it's not done. And men, I'm looking right at you. Your wife says, how you doing? Fine. Liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire. How did that that impact you? I didn't buy it. It was fine. It's not a big deal at all. No, no big deal. You'll get over it. It is what it is. It's fine. Bull. We, we all do this all the time. Ladies, you, you, did I do something wrong? No. <laughs> liar, liar, pants on fire. Babe, how can I help? You can't. Where do you want to go to eat? I don't care. Anywhere is fine. No, that's not true either. <laughs> Let's just skip to the part where you pick and I say good and I'll pay. Can we just get to the good part there? Listen, listen, when emotion and crisis and trouble comes in our lives, and it comes for your life, we can't walk in denying. We can't ignore it and suppress it. Listen, listen, listen. Ignoring the reality of how you feel is not faith. It's not faith. Because Jesus didn't do it that way. Listen, I grew up in an environment where we, weren't, we, we were encouraged never to say we were sick. We were taught to say, I'm coming down with a healing. I don't know, your nose looks pretty runny, and I ain't getting near none of that. Well, I'm just coming down. Well, that may be true, but right now you got the flu, so get your butt in bed. right? Because we, we had this thought process that says if I confess anything negative, I'm going to create negativity in my life. That's not what confession is for. That's not how it works, my friends. That's not God's design for it. I know the Bible says that we go from glory to glory, strength to strength, but that doesn't mean there's a bunch of poo-poo in the middle. I clean that up. I filtered myself. You're welcome. I self-regulate every once in a while. Listen, listen. Glory to glory just means the goodness of God's presence follows the goodness of God's presence. That even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. It's a moment of acknowledging life is terrible. Glory to glory, strength to strength. Yes, I believe in all of those things. Following Jesus is about experiencing the abundant life. But the abundant life doesn't mean everything is always up and to the right. 
Glory to glory, strength to strength. The goodness of God doesn't mean you're getting a nicer car, a newer house, an upgraded spouse, and heaven forbid, like a new job that gives you more money. That's not the picture of the abundant life. The picture of the abundant life is a flourishing inner world of a rooted connectedness to God all the time. It's not, listen, the abundant life of God is not void of materialistic blessings. But the abundant life is not defined by materialistic blessings. It's beyond that because that's not the point. Listen, Romans 8, 17 says it like this. And since we are his children, we are heirs. And in fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's, what's that word? Glory, which means his goodness, the weight of his presence. It's his glory. And if we're to share in his glory, if you want his glory, if you want his oil, if you want his presence, you must also share in his what? Suffering. Peter was an unhealthy follower of Jesus who was immature. Jesus was the exact opposite. Peter denied the possibility that he was weak enough to ever deny Jesus. Jesus acknowledged his desire was not really to suffer, but he was willing to do it if God needed him to. Complete opposite. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus went and prayed three times. Peter lived deceived about himself. Jesus was true with the reality of what he was walking through. Peter was weak, but he talked like he was strong. No, Lord, I'll never, def- I'll never leave you. I'll always be there. I'm, I'm, I'm your man. Jesus acknowledged and admitted that he was feeling weak and overwhelmed. Is it possible, is it possible that Peter's denial of Jesus three times wasn't a demonstration of betrayal or lack of faith or understanding that Jesus was the Son of God? As most of us have perhaps thought of, I can't believe Peter would turn his back on Jesus in the moment when he needed him the most. What if it wasn't an issue of faith and understanding of God's word? What if it was an issue of emotional immaturity? Peter never grew past his immature emotional ability to process what is going on. And he responded emotionally out of his immaturity. Is it it also possible that Jesus tried to lead Peter and give him the opportunity to process his own weakness and potential failure, the weak spot Jesus pointed out to him, said, Peter, no, no, you're going to deny me three times. Jesus gave him the opportunity three times to do the right thing with the, the processing of that weakness. Watch and pray with me, Peter, so that you don't fall into temptation. 
Many of us are fighting battles without strength because we have yet to go to the source of strength and get access to it. And getting strength from God, listen, getting strength from God does not come by asking God for strength. Look at how Paul says we get strength. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Three different times I begged the Lord to take away this affliction from me. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can what? Work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then he is A prerequisite from getting the strength of God that you need when you need it is to acknowledge that you're weak and you don't have it. God doesn't need your strength. He needs your weakness. God has zero weaknesses. So you can't bring him your strength. He's got all the strength that he needs. That's not the offering. That's not the sacrifice. That's not the worship. God doesn't need you to reveal and prove how strong you are. God needs you to admit that you are weak. And you don't have what it takes in this moment to surpass it. He needs you to acknowledge, God, I am angry. God, I am frustrated. God, I am overwhelmed. God, I don't have what it takes. I am weak. But it is in that moment of acknowledging and confessing my weakness that his spirit and power can be made strong. And in the moment and times of prayer is where we can get vulnerable about our weaknesses before God. And in return, receive the strength that we need to live faithfully with God. Friends, God has no problem demonstrating his power to the world around him. But you know there's a dimension of his power that can't be seen until his power starts working through broken people. Until his power starts being seen and evident in people who are grieving. Until his power can be seen in people who have felt like a failure. Until his power can be seen in people who are willing to say, God, I am weak and I need your strength in this moment, Lord. I am crushed, God, by the weight of these financial pressures and I need your strength. See, bringing God your weakness is better than lashing out at your kids in anger. And that's my weakness, too. Until we confess vulnerably and honestly our, our need from God, that's when his strength shows up from God. Most of you are living your life without the power of God every day because you are not coming to the Lord in prayer and bringing him your weaknesses. Because your weakness is like the broken, fragmented jar of clay. And God loves to fill jars of clay with the fullness of his oil and new wine. That's what he's longing to do. Prayer is the place we unpack and learn to practice our vulnerability. Friends, here's the last point. Prayer is a place God meets us in our suffering. I told you there are two ways that are incorrect distrust and denial. That's not how we want to deal with the pain and suffering of our life. 
you know the right way, the way Jesus showed us in the garden to process our pain and our suffering and our anguish and our grief and our disappointments and our desire to not do something even though God is willing us that we would do that something? You want to know the right way to handle those things? It's death. Death to yourself. Death to your pride. Death to your insecurity. Death to your confidence and self-assurance. Death is something that we must experience, friends, if we'll ever want to experience resurrection life. This is why water baptism is about burying something. It's about burying your flesh so that you can experience the resurrection of new life up out of the waters. We're going to be celebrating baptism in three weeks. It's as much a celebration of something dying as it is of something coming back to life. Death is the proper response to crisis because it is in death that we get into what the ancients call the sacred pit. It's a pit because it's dark and it's cold and it feels counterintuitive to our life and it feels like something is going underground. It feels dark. It's a pit. But it's also sacred because that's the place where God says, I'll show up. See, it was in the sacred pit of the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus experienced the angels ministering to him. The sustaining presence of God showed up to Jesus in the moment in the garden. It was a dark night of his soul. It was dark. He didn't really want his flesh, did not want to go to the cross. That's why he said, the spirit is willing, but my flesh is really weak, Lord. This cup of suffering, if it can happen, if there's another way, God, to redeem your people, I want to know right now. But if there's not another way, not my will, but your will, Lord. Not my will, but your will. St. John of the cross refers to these moments as the dark night of our soul where we feel the darkness of the pit. He says it like this, that God sends us, quote unquote, the dark night of loving fire to free us, to purify us, to undo something in us from the sedly Devon spiritual imperfections that immature or beginners in faith must be purified of. See, the crushing did something to the olives on the outside, but the pressing did something to the olives on the inside. It, it required something. You had to go through the press. The olives had to be pressed and crushed in order to become oil. If you're going to see the transformation of the life of God in your life, there is a crushing that you must go through. And St. John of the Cross says there are things like pride that must die. There are things like avarice that must be crushed and pressed out of your attitudes and actions and hearts. There are things like luxury and wrath and spiritual gluttony and spiritual envy and sloth that must be taken to the crucible of the cross and in the olive press allow God to meet you there, remove and transform and transcend those pains until it becomes the pureness of his spirit and presence in your life so that you don't look like an olive anymore you look like the oil of the spirit now, you don't look like Greg anymore you look like Jesus to the world around you now. It's about a transformation in our life. 
Suffering is how we grow and are purified and become refined with a strong faith. Now hear me. Suffering in the New Testament is not a result of God's judgment for the sins of the world. The sins of the world were taken care of and judged and placed on Jesus' shoulders. For the believer, suffering is not about God punishing you because you did something wrong. He already did that to Jesus. Suffering is not even about that happening for the unbeliever. Why? Because their judgment is coming at the end of time when God comes back and he'll judge the world of their sins. That's coming later for them. So why do we experience suffering now? Why is there so much pain now? Why is there trouble now? Why are there disorders and disease now? Why, why all the, these things? Well, well, it is true that there are some consequences of the reality of evil in our world. There are some consequences that you experience in your life because you have done the wrong thing and you were an idiot and you kept swiping your plastic credit card thinking it was going to help you, but it only landed you in more debt. That's not God's punishment for your sin. That's just the reality of your ignorance and lack of self-control and materialism and whatever else. I don't know. It comes for all of us. I get it. It's not a condemnation statement. I'm just talking about the cause and effect of things. pain and suffering comes in our lives because there are something in us that doesn't reflect God and there are aspects of God we cannot experience or know and there are things of God that cannot be seen by the world around us unless the people of God are purified and walk through fire that's what James tells us it's a master class on these things James 1 says dear brothers and sisters when troubles of any kind come your way consider it an opportunity for joy for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. And when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. And if you need wisdom, just ask our generous God and he'll give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. He goes on to say this, God blesses those who patiently endure testing. Who patiently endure this. Who patiently endure the trials and the tribulations and the fire of life. Those who patiently, there's something that is birth in you. So the question is, how do we allow that to be the result of our suffering? How do we come to a place of suffering well? I really do believe that we suffer well when we believe that in our crushing and suffering, we are not being ignored or damaged. Instead, we trust God that in each one of our trials, as we surrender it to God's ways to restore and reveal his masterpiece in us, we are being transformed into the glorious image of Christ something that is being produced in us that only can be reproduced in the Gethsemanes of our life. And the proper response to Gethsemane, the proper thing to do when you're in a Gethsemane is to pray and engage with the Lord. To wrestle your will until it becomes His. To, to, to practice being vulnerable before Him and to welcome his presence with you in that pit and that pain. And he's faithful to show up. Friends, the world longs to find people who are loving, 
And the world longs to find people who know how to suffer well to guide them in life. It's part of what the people of God get to do. We get to look around the world and say, yeah, I know, I know. It's really tough. Grandma's got dementia. But take it to the Lord. Keep being vulnerable. Surrender your will, not give it to God. Practice that vulnerability. Allow God to meet you because, oh, there's oil on the other side of that. Something good on the other side of that. And what the enemy caused for evil, God can turn a bitter olive and a bitterness of life and turn it into the joy of the oil that comes in the morning. Where instead of feeling abandoned, you know that he is always with us. The question is, will you allow the crushing in this life to lead you to a robust communion with Father, Son, and Spirit in moments of connected prayer? That's the question. That's the invitation for all of us. Would you go ahead and get out your communion elements? If uh, maybe you didn't get any elements, just kind of make eye contact with our host. They'd be happy to get these in your hands, those online. Go ahead and open up the bread. And you can flip it over and open up the juice. We'll all partake here in a minute. Uh, friends, I, I want us to recognize this moment with the Lord. Some of you, you know exactly what this feels like because you feel crushed and pressed right now. The circumstances of life are squeezing and pinching some things and your flesh is crying out. And maybe it's time that you begin to pray each day as the Lord taught us to pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in the crushing in the pressing you're making new wine the soil of our hearts Lord now I surrender you can make new oil come from me you can turn this olive into the anointing oil of your spirit in the world re-engage with the Lord. Would you just bow your heads, close your eyes for a second? Where is it you need to say, not my will, but your will, Lord? Where is it there are some things in your flesh that you need to see die? Where are the things that you need to start practicing appropriate vulnerability with the Lord and practice those things? Where is it that you need to make space to sit and be in the presence of God on your own and to be with Him in communion? Lord, you haven't left us alone. So, Lord, here in this moment, we say our Father who is in heaven.
forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. So Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one that's trying to trap us all over the place. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Go ahead and take the bread. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him, Jesus, grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants and will enjoy a long life. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. Go ahead and take the juice. If you would stand when you are dismissed here in just a minute, you'll be able to take your empty cups they'll be at the door to collect those but for now can we strengthen one another with the words of our corporate blessing speaking life and encouragement and reminding us of who God is in among us can we say this together nice and strong ready go hope today's message was life-giving. As a church, we want to help you encounter God and take another next step in your allegiance to Jesus. I want to ask you to take a step right now, in fact. Would you just share this message with a friend? Maybe post it on your social, text a coworker the link. Just be sure to include something that you learned or how it impacted you personally. When you do that, you get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in someone else. And don't forget to visit our central hub, faithchurchks.org. You'll find other next steps that you can take in your faith, including giving and partnership with us as we help others encounter Jesus like you've encountered him. Hey, we love you. And until we get to hang out again, remember, don't shrink back from your faithful allegiance to King Jesus.